Hello, and welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's Featured Article of the Month podcast for August 2022. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website, and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Dr. Nilru Vitharana. This month's featured article is part of our series on error traps, entitled Error Traps in Acute Pain Management in Children. I'm delighted to be joined by the first author, Dr. Tricia Vecchioni. Dr. Vecchioni is the Director of the Pediatric Acute Pain Service and Pediatric Regional Anesthesia Service at Johns Hopkins University. One of the things I really enjoyed about this paper was the presence of these tables that summarise the pharmacological therapy options in a really simple way that would be invaluable to someone in the early stages of learning about paediatric pain management, but also made the paper accessible to consolidate and refresh knowledge for those more experienced in pain management. Firstly, Dr. Bernie, what were the aims of the paper and how does this paper fill in some of the gaps in this sphere? Yeah, so this paper, as you had mentioned, is part of a series in Evertraps of areas in, within pediatric uh, anesthesia. And so initially, the aim of our paper was to identify specific error traps or circumstances that would lead to erroneous actions within pediatric acute pain management, which could lead to inadequate pain control or also unintended side effects or adverse events. We essentially identified five domains, which included failure to appropriately assess pain, utilize regional anesthesia, select suitable systemic analgesics, consider patient characteristics when choosing medications and dosing route, and treating medication-related side effects. Another paper actually in the series was published just as we were finishing our paper, took a little bit of a different focus than the previous papers. And so they also emphasize not only knowledge gaps were cut, but also cognitive biases or these thought process sort of errors. And so then we also identified cognitive biases that that could impact pain management. And these would include anchoring bias, framing effect, commission bias, overconfidence bias, sunken cost, visceral bias, and the zebra retreat. We then try to incorporate both common misconceptions, which is the practical piece to this paper, as well as these cognitive biases, which may play a role in the clinical decision-making and acute pain management. We reviewed specific management strategies, and then identified specific situations in which these cognitive biases may lead to the error-likely management. And this list is probably not exhaustive, and there probably are other error traps that do exist, But the authors believe that understanding these very basic elements in pediatric pain management would provide the essential first steps to avoid these erroneous actions and improve patient care. The paper takes a systematic approach to looking at a number of key themes in pediatric acute pain management. Let's talk about firstly failure to recognize and appropriately assess pain. What are some of the key traps here? Right. So we know pain assessment is the critical first step in effective pain management, and failure to assess pain can lead to the erroneous conclusion that, well, pain's not present. And also conversely, assessing pain but utilizing an unsuitable method can be problematic as well. Um, You know, unfortunately, we don't have a standardized approach in pediatrics because of variability in age and cognitive development. Self-report measures remain the gold standard when possible. Um, These would include the numeric rating scale, the visual analog scale in older children, the facial expression in younger children um, over the age of three. Um, But many times we have to rely on other measures. And so there are a number of validated instruments 
um, that can be used in children who are unable to communicate, whether due to age, developmental delay, or medical therapy, such as intubation. Um, usually they combine physiologic and behavioral parameters. The problem with these is that they're not very good at differentiating distress from pain versus distress from other sources. Is it just a hungry baby? Is it hunger? Is it an IV? Is it the endotracheal tube? Um, along these lines, interpreting pain scores, you have to consider both situational and cultural context. And we know that potential language barriers can lead to common misconceptions, attitudes, and cognitive biases um, in these areas as well. Studies suggest pain is underestimated in developmentally delayed children. Also suggests that children from different ethnicities, races, and cultural backgrounds express pain differently. And if the providers are not aware of these differences, it really can result in suboptimal care. Um, we know language barriers can lead to misconceptions and delays in care as well. And so we need to be mindful to take those extra steps to get appropriate translators when we're caring for these children. Um, we also need to be mindful to treat um, the patient, not a number, right? This pain subjective. And so aiming for low pain scores when we're focusing solely on a number, but creating patients who are too nauseous and who are vomiting or too sedated to undergo what we need them to do, participate in physical therapy is not our desired outcome. And what are some of the ways in which we may fail to optimally use regional anesthesia? Sure. So the first step in avoiding pitfalls in regional anesthesia is to acknowledge they exist. And so first step is avoiding overconfidence bias. And I, and I love this one because I think we're all guilty of this. I think we all know people who may be guilty of this in our field. Um, and even the most competent pediatric regional anesthesiologist cannot claim 100% success, right? We know that. So let's talk about peripheral nerve blocks first. We have block failure that occurs when you either block the wrong nerve or you don't block all of the nerves that innervate a painful site. We can further break this down. We break this down in the paper to complete block failure, incomplete block failure, or secondary failure, which where the pain extends beyond the duration of the block. We now have nerve stimulator and ultrasound. They have pretty much mitigated total block failure, but not necessarily have created the perfect block per se. Um, and we all know that they rely on provider familiarity for their use. Um, in regards to an incomplete block, and this is the one I think is probably the most important to focus on, is I want to stress the importance of blocking all relevant nerves to a painful site. An example of this would be performing a femoral nerve block and expecting complete analgesia of the knee, um, where the, we know the innervation is quite complex. And we mentioned this in the paper, but this is probably one of my favorite lines, and I think it's worthwhile mentioning again, is experience suggests that when we're only blocking 60% of the pain, Patients do not experience 40% less pain. They, well, rather, 100% of that pain is then focused on the area we missed. And so lastly, another misconception um, regarding secondary failure is us thinking that we're adding value by doing a single shot block for a procedure where we know the severity and duration of pain is going to outlast our block. And this is really where providers need to be mindful of considering peripheral nerve catheters, whether they be inpatient or via home catheter programs. Um, in regards to epidural failures, again, they can be complete or partial. Secondary failure can also occur from catheter migration. Um, 
you know, complete failure is pretty easy to recognize. But again, it's that incomplete blockade. And how do you manage that? And really, you need to know how to diagnose the reason that's resulting in that incomplete blockade, whether it be, you know, was the block too low? Did we miss segments? And when we should really be transitioning to alternative, more effective pain management therapies. And so reluctance to abandon a therapy, i.e. putting in an epidural, because we've invested so much time and resources into it already, um, is known as sunken cost bias. And that really can delay um, care in choosing a more appropriate technique. And just real quick, um, I want to just talk really quickly about choosing the appropriate drugs, concentrations, and volumes to ensure a block success. Um, There are times we know volume may be more important if you need more spread. That's where pump technologies, such as the programmable intermittent bolus dosing is an attractive option. We also have to be mindful to balance concentration of local anesthetic to balance analgesia and functionality, right? We're usually going for analgesia. We don't want motor blockade where patients cannot participate in physical therapy or do, again, the things we need them to do. Um, And the last thing I think worthwhile mentioning is just to be mindful of the administration of local anesthetics and the risk of local anesthetic systemic toxicity, specifically in the pediatric population that we know is at the highest risk of last. And although adjuncts don't prevent block failure, they may improve the efficacy of a suboptimal block, and they may also help us use reduced doses of local anesthetics and thereby decrease the risk of last. What are some of the biases that contribute to failure of choosing the appropriate systemic analgesics? Sure. So choosing systemic analgesics requires clinicians to understand the patient's specific type and severity of pain. And so we know cognitive biases can can hamper this, essentially. Commission bias or the tendency of action rather than inaction is a big one that plays a role here because it can motivate clinicians to, say, prescribe opioids as first-line therapy for all types of pain or levels of pain when we know maybe that's not the correct approach, or escalating doses when patients may benefit from maybe a different sort of analgesic. Premature uh, closure is a preliminary conclusion regarding the source of a patient's pain without choosing or considering other alternative etiologies of the pain. And we could see this, an example of this would be if a patient's having pain due to muscle or bladder spasms in orthopedic or urologic procedures and escalating an opioid when maybe starting a muscle relaxant would be more beneficial. What role do gabapentinoids and ketamine play in acute pain management? Yeah, so this is a good question. So the role of gabapentinoids in chronic neuropathic pain, I think, is pretty well established. Uh, Unfortunately, there are very few randomized controlled trials on its use in pediatric acute pain management, but it has been shown to decrease opioid consumption and post-op operative pain, in specifically in spinal fusion surgery. Um, they're also gaining popularity as a component of a lot of the pediatric multimodal perioptic pain pathways. And they can also play a role, we have this at our institution, um, in acute neuropathic pain, including oncology patients who are undergoing antibody therapy. Um, in regards to ketamine, um, we know it could also decrease pain and consumption of other analgesics. Um, unfortunately, the, the role of ketamine, and specifically to post-operative pain, is quite variable in the literature. Our experience suggests that at low infusions of a 0.1 to 0.2 milligram per kilogram per hour dose may be beneficial, again, as part of those multimodal regimens or in those patients who are opioid tolerant. What patient characteristics are important for us to consider when dosing? 
Yeah, so there are a number of physiologic conditions that require modification of dosing. These include genetic conditions, disease states, extremes of age, most specifically for us, it would be the neonatal population. Um, All of these affect metabolism, drug binding, and elimination. An example of this is the CYP2D6 gene duplication, which we know leads to ultra-rapid metabolism of codeine. Uh, It necessitated our FDA to issue a black box warning on its use in children um, due to the risk of morphine overdose. Um, The same holds true for tramadol, which is not recommended, at least in the United States, in children under the age of 12 or those with obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, I think morphine is worthwhile mentioning. Um, we know to be cautious in its use in renal failure due to the ap- active morphine 6 metabolite, which can lead to respiratory depression. Um, and this holds true for our neonates and our premature infants who also have immature metabolism and elimination of morphine as well. You know, in these specific patients, focusing solely on managing pain while failure to consider their underlying conditions, it's a form of anchoring bias and can potentially lead to unintended adverse consequences if not noticed. Outside, you know, this is outside the scope of the paper, but I want to take two seconds to just discuss it, um, is highlight a few points on chronic pain as it pertains to acute pain management. Um, Patients with chronic pain also require higher doses of opioids and other analgesics um, to achieve adequate pain relief after surgery. For those on chronic opioids, we need to prescribe at least their home opioid dosing at a minimum, and they often require higher doses of additional opioid and other analgesics for effective pain management. Unfortunately, at times, these patients can be viewed as challenging, which may engender some negative feelings or visceral bias of the providers. And, you know, this can really result in resistance to making provisions to analgesic dosing if we're not taking their reports of pain seriously. Finally, what are some of the traps in failing to recognize and treat medication side effects appropriately? Sure. So all medications have side effects and anticipating the adverse events to promote proactive management and possible avoidance is really key here. Um, Most clinicians know about acetaminophen and NSAIDs and liver um, and renal toxicity respectfully. A lot of the adjuncts we prescribe, the benzodiazepines, the gabapentinoids, the alpha-2 adrenergic agonists are sedating. We need to be mindful of the role of benzodiazepines in uh, creating uh, delirium in critically ill children. We know the side effects of opioids are well established, nausea, vomiting, constipation, sedation, respiratory depression. Um, But when we don't treat these side effects, these side effects can become more debilitating than the pain itself. And so this is why it's really important to pay attention to them. And, you know, anchoring bias, I mentioned it earlier, also plays a role here. when we're when we need to evaluate patients of oversedation from paid medications, and we're focusing solely on maybe just decreasing the opioid as opposed to asking, is there something else happening right now? What are the other comorbidities um, and the role of polypharmacy, which is actually quite common with multimodal analgesia these days? Another potential error trap. Last one I'm going to mention is the zebra retreat bias. This is an important one in which a rare diagnosis figures prominently among possibilities, but physicians may be hesitant to pursue it. An example of this would be LAST. Uh, The symptoms of LAST can be difficult to discern, especially in our younger patients who are at the highest risk. And so, yes, it's rare, but it's it's a potentially catastrophic event when it happens. And so we know timely treatment's essential and clinicians really need to have a low threshold for administering administering intralipid. Along with the comprehensive tables I mentioned before, the final figure in the paper 
really integrates all of these error traps that we've just talked about to really emphasize how important it is for us to be mindful of these factors in pediatric pain management. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Vecchioni, and to your team for their hard work on publishing this excellent review article. This wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for August 2022. This article will be available for free on the journal's website soon. Follow us on Twitter. Please join us for next month's featured article of the month podcast. Until then, cheers.